Hello and welcome to the Aspen Music Festival and School podcast, where we talk to favourite Aspen musicians about those special moments of musical inspiration, the ones that show us, that show them, what music is, what a life in music can or should be. I'm your host, James Inverne. Today's guest is certainly a favourite artist of mine, someone I and many others became aware of from her early recordings for Colin Davis and others. I was at school then, but she was also at school, not least in Aspen, where she developed as an artist and no doubt as a person. You heard her just now playing the Franck Violin Sonata from a wonderful recording on Warner Classics, where she also plays music by Saint-Saëns and Ravel, accompanied by Lars Vocht, and you can hear more of that at the end of the show. Very happy to welcome the wonderful violinist, Sarah Chang. Sarah, hello. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm very well, thanks. So we are, as you know, bending the rules for you, which is a momentous thing here on the Aspen podcast. We're always being (laughs) bent for Sarah Chang. So this is entirely my doing because you had two interesting moments of musical inspiration, and I want to include them both. And this is how I'm going to allow it. Because the first one is about something that can happen to any musician, certainly any musician who plays in an orchestra and is a fascinating reflection on that and is about as far away from the life of an A-list musical star as you can get. But then the second one is about as close to the life of an A-list musical star as you can get with all the perils and excitement and wonderful art as well that can entail. So why don't you tell us the story of the first one when you had an encounter with a certain Maestro Foster? So Maestro Foster, Lawrence Foster, has always been one of my favorites. And this was a time I was very, very young. And we had just had our concert together where I played a concerto. And I remember during the rehearsals, we were going over sections and I was doing what I thought was the right thing to do and playing with the beat all the time, you know, watching a stick, watching very closely, his body language, his eyes, his stick, his arms, and playing as close to the stick as I possibly could and not understanding why the polyphonic sound in the orchestra, why it was always just a tiny bit later than what I was seeing. So my master would always say, it's the distance, it's the distance, you've got to give time for the distance. And that didn't really click what he was saying. So I remember after that concert, he asked, hey, are you around this week? And I was because I was a student at the Aspen Music Festival. So I basically said, yeah, of course I'm around. So he said, do you want to sit in orchestra? And I thought that was just such a cool idea. So he very kindly stuck me in the back of the first violins in the festival orchestra. And I still remember the program. It was the Verdi Requiem. And for the other program, it was Wagner's Vatodama, the concert version of it. And I remember sitting in orchestra. And this was one of my first times where I was really immersed in all the rehearsals and I was there for the orchestra concert and I really wanted to learn and soak up as much as I could. And I remember sitting there thinking the sheer distance from where I stand as a soloist, which is literally right in front of the conductor's nose, where I can see the stick and I can feel the stick, as opposed to sitting in an orchestra as one of 80 people as one of 80 musicians and having that distance where you see the stick, but then there is that automatic distance and weight of sound that you have to feel and give a little bit of space and time for. That's the first time I actually understood 
what conductors always mean when they say, wait for the sound or play behind the stick or we play with the stick or anticipate the stick. I always wonder what do they mean when they say that? And I feel that that week with him, playing in an orchestra, being a student, being a normal student and being willing to learn was the first time that my eyes and ears were opened and I understood what the chamber music aspect was of even playing in a concerto. It all links together. That's so fascinating because the two works that you were playing were pretty mammoth works, the Verdi Requiem and presumably by the concert version of Gostamering. I'm guessing yeah. it's probably the, was it the Lauren Mazel version, The Ring Without Words? Or No, was I don't think it was that one. I think it was the other one. But it was massive though. I mean, both, as you said, both concert programs were absolutely monumental and just, just gigantic programs. So they're works where you've got an enormous kind of wodge of sound or or mix of sounds careering around above the stage, as it were, and then never mind projecting into the audience. And I would imagine that they're works where it's even more difficult to hear each other because you're talking about such thick textures. Exactly. Because for both of those works, you have every brass instrument, every wooden instrument, every percussion instrument known to mankind joining the stage with you. So there is the bombastic nature of it, plus the fact that with a violin or any stringed instrument you play and the sound is right there, but with the wind instruments and brass instruments, you need to give a little more space, you know, just because of the monstrosity of the sound of those instruments. So it really was an eye-opening and ear-opening experience. And I remember somebody coming to me right before the concert and giving me earplugs. I think this was for the Gotterdammerung concert and said, you're going to need this because, you know, the percussion is so loud. And I said, actually, no, the whole reason I'm here is because I want to hear absolutely everything that's going on. And also I remember not using earplugs for that concert and thinking, oh, that might have not been the best. Oh. <laughs> but I was really, really grateful. I was really grateful. <laughs> I've just got an image of you kind of wandering off stage, dazed, banging into furniture backstage. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, not only do you realize the distance between the musicians and the conductor and the stick and the soloist, if there is a soloist, but the relationship between all the various instruments on stage and then how that carries out into the audience, because then they hear a completely different version, you know, because the the acoustics, what you hear on stage isn't necessarily what the audience hears. So all of that mixed in together, just the big jigsaw puzzle that you're always trying to solve. And it just made me really appreciate what all the musicians do on stage because you know as a soloist if you're not careful there's a danger of becoming quite (laughs) self-centered and thinking this is a violin concerto and oh exactly right (laughs) so i think that week working with him and the musicians and being on stage and being a part of a big ensemble and just having just that chamber music feel and makes you appreciate the fact that even with a violin concerto it really is like a symphonic work. It is a symphonic work with a soul and you have to treat it exactly as you would any other chamber music concert because it really is about just listening and opening your ears and being so sensitive to everything that's going on around you. So after that, when you have played, as you have thousands of times, of course, played concertos with Mm -hmm. orchestras in concert, how does it practically work? I mean, because in chamber music, you listen to the other musicians 
But where you're placed in an orchestra, you will have a bias from listening to the, usually, you know, the violins next to you, of course. So what do you do? Do you try and listen to everything going on around you? Do you try and face the orchestra a little bit more so you can hear better? Or do you rely more on the conductor as the person who's putting it all together? I think it's actually finding that perfect balance between everything that you just mentioned, because you really can't have one without the other. What I have actually started to do now is play the first rehearsal facing the orchestra. I really actually enjoy doing that because then the F-holes of my instrument are facing them so they can actually hear what's Mm. going on. And then, of course, for the dress rehearsal, I face out towards the audience the way that I need to for the concert because then, of course, that changes everything. But what I used to sort of imagine was that if I open my eyes directly in my sight line is the conductor and the stick. But that's not the case for everybody in the orchestra, depending on when they're sitting, right? So some of them have to rely more on their ears rather than their eyes. And it really is finding that perfect balance. And I feel that the thing that all of us soloists do when things start slightly, not a lot, but just slightly getting off sync is we start either tapping our foot or we start gesturing with our scroll while we're playing, right? And then you realize that is very fruitless because depending on where the musicians are sitting, they can't see you bopping your scroll. The conductor can see you and everyone stage left can see you, but everybody stage right can't. So then you realize it's actually more helpful if you try to connect. And by connect, I mean eyesight-wise with a musician who's either lagging or slightly ahead of you and try to lock in with them and then bring them to your tempo so that you're doing it together instead of just annoying everybody by tapping your foot or bobbing your scroll like crazy. So there are little things I find is a little more graceful and also more helpful. Okay, so if this was the popular podcast, This American Life, and we're sure that this will become as successful as that, the classical music (laughs) equivalent, they would say end of act one, and now we're going to move on to act two. Act two, Sarah Chang at a gala. So (laughs) so this next story, which is very much about being, of course, not only about being a leading musician, but it's being in the company of leading musicians. People like me come along to galas, and we see that everyone we've ever heard of and their mothers are on the stage and it's all very exciting and it seems to be like a fabulous well-oiled machine and in fact sometimes it can even seem a little bit too well planned or a bit too safe where you just know that nothing's going to go wrong and you've got great musicians and you're in good hands but you had an experience which was very unlike that Oh, I remember there was this one concert in Aspen. It was a spectacular gala. It was one of the anniversary concerts, I would say at least 15, 20 years ago. It was literally the who's who of the entire classical music world came to Aspen. And I remember being so starstruck the entire time because, <laughs> you know, you're you're standing backstage in every dressing room. You know, you have Yo-Yo Ma, and then next to that, you have Martha Argerich, and next to that, you have Fima Brofman, next to that, you have Pinko Zuckerman, next to it. It's just, it was never ending. And I was just standing there backstage, just in disbelief, thinking, how is it that I have a dressing room right next to these unbelievable idols in the industry, you know, and I'm having to pinch myself. But I remember this concert because we were playing Mendelssohn Octet. 
and also uh, Sasan's Carnival of the Animals. So you had all these unbelievable, spectacular musicians landing in Aspen. And we only had one rehearsal on the day of the concert because everybody was so busy and coming from all corners of the world. And sorry to pause you, but I just want to try and pin down who else was in the octet, if you can remember. So the octet, the two cellists were Yo-Yo Ma and Lynn Harrell. Mm-hmm. The two violists, David Zimmerman, who was the music director then. And I think the other violist was Masao Kawasaki and the violinist. Nicholas Dickerman, Midori was there, I was there, Robert McDuffie. There were a lot of violinists too. I think Zach Perlman was there as well. I mean, it literally was the who's who. Shlomo Mintz was there, Omar Oliveira was there. Literally, it was the who's who. And then Martha Argerich and then Emmanuel Axe and Fima Brofman, they all did piano. And so everyone was descending on the day. Yeah, just about. <laughs> just about. So we had one rehearsal for all of this. And the thing is, you get there and you think, oh, everything will be fine. But then, you know, real life kicks in and, you know, flights are late. People are delayed. And I remember we only got to rehearse certain sections <laughs> of certain pieces. And then they had to open the house. They had to open the house so the audience could come in. So then we hurriedly all went backstage and we were trying to finish rehearsing. Oh, but hang on. You enigmatically said flights are delayed and people were late. Whose flights were delayed and who was late? Oh, well, I remember Martha Argerich's flight being delayed. <laughs> I think Lynn Harrell's flight was also delayed, and I think Mr. Zuckerman's. Which is actually easily done around Aspen because it's, you know, it's on a mountain and sometimes the weather gets windy or whatever, and it's been known to happen. I'm just putting myself in your shoes. So you were backstage, fairly overawed at this enormous thing you were part of with all these fantastic people. And then you started getting all of these messages that Martha Argrich was delayed and then one after another, that this rehearsal was not going to happen in the way that was meant to happen. How did that make you feel? Presumably somewhat nervous? Well, I mean, when you have such a star-studded cast like that, you don't really worry because you know you have basically the most incredible world. So you don't really worry, but the realistic part of you sort of kicks in and nudges you to think, well, it would be nice if we ran through the piece once before the concert, you know? (laughs) So, so, you know, we did manage to very quickly run through everything backstage. I think we held the concert for a few minutes because it was just getting themselves settled. But it was one of those things where... You have these incredible personalities and unbelievable talent descending onto one stage. And even if people haven't played together or haven't quite rehearsed, you know, showtime comes and then everybody is giving 120%. And that was probably one of the most exciting, powerful, dramatic and fun concerts that I've ever been a part of because it's such a celebratory mode and the caliber of musicianship on there is just astronomical. So I remember just being awestruck the entire, entire evening. So everyone was playing, presumably with the benefit of extra adrenaline. And when you've got musicians of that caliber playing on adrenaline, then... Then it becomes magical. The thing is that you can't always bank on that happening. I would never, ever advocate for people to go on stage (laughs) without having rehearsed because this only happens once in a blue moon. And 
thankfully all the stars aligned and everything clicked that day and it happened to be a magical evening one that people still talk about but yeah well i mean first of all i love the image of all of you guys practicing backstage as <laughs> everyone in front of house <laughs> having no idea that this was happening quickly everyone outside your dressing rooms we're going to go through it once but also you'd never have planned it but it's a really interesting kind of example of the spontaneity in music and the brilliance that can emerge from real spontaneity writ large. I mean, it's like a deep immersion, a high risk, deep immersion. It's almost like if someone had designed that as an experiment, the best (laughs) result you could get from great talent and spontaneity and all of these things we know exist in music, but often it's just too risky, as you say, to trust to it. And it wasn't designed, but you had that experience and that must have stayed with you. Exactly. And I also think it helps when you have someone as the unofficial ringleader or the cheerleader who's there and pumping everybody up and making it fun and making the worries and the stress and the tension sort of ease away. For that particular concert, it was definitely yo-yo. Because I remember in that same program, some of us were playing short little fun bonbon solo pieces. And I was doing, it was either Sigourney Rajan or Carmen Fantasy. It was one of the Sarasati pieces with the orchestra. And Yo-Yo was playing The Swan. And so it was like little fun pieces like that scattered throughout the entire evening with some big chamber music pieces integrated into it. So it was a really amazing program. But I remember three minutes before showtime, after we had finished rehearsing and everybody was hurriedly changing into their concert gowns or tuxes, and then my Sarasate was up first. So I went back into my room and I was hurriedly changing and then trying to do a few scales or warming up before. And then Yo-Yo knocked on my dressing room door and he was like, Sarah, get out here. We're doing a group photo. And he was like, stop practicing. You already know this piece. You know this piece. Backwards and forwards. Come out. Let's do a group photo. And, you know, he was just so relaxed and just smiling from ear to ear and just treating the whole evening as it should have been treated. A whole celebratory appreciation for what Aspen Music Festival is and what it brings and to the audience and also to the musicians. And it really is one of the most, if not the most, spectacular, star-studded, incredibly nurturing and fulfilling festivals out there where soloists and conductors and musicians, faculty, and the students are all under the same umbrella and treated equally and given the same amount of care and love and support. And it really is a one of a kind. That's wonderful to hear. And I'm glad that we bent the rules and allowed you to have two moments of musical inspiration. (laughs) Because also what I should have said is it genuinely shows two sides of Aspen because you had the experience in the first case with Larry Foster that many Aspen students have, because Aspen, I think, pioneered this idea of side-by-side playing where you have students alongside seasoned and leading professionals in the orchestras there. And so that's very much what it's about, but also that wonderful, what I can only or will only describe maybe cornerly as a great big musical group hug. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Exactly what it felt like. You're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Of that last experience is also, is also very Aspen. So, Sarah Chang, we look forward to seeing you at many more Aspen festivals. And thanks so much for sharing your very entertaining and very enjoyable and fascinating moments of musical revelation with us. Thank you, Jane.
This episode of Moments of Musical Revelation was produced in association with The Strad. Editing was by Tim Burton.